Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer leads us through the Beatitude series called Life Signs of a Believer. If you've ever wondered what the attributes a follower of Jesus looks like, they are described in the Beatitudes. If you claim to be a Christian, are these terms that describe your walk in Christ? Today, we take a look at Blessed are the Pure in Heart. If you're in the Ashton or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here's Heath. through what are we calling the life signs of a believer, that we, uh, as spiritual beings, we can take a pulse like we do physically. When you go to the doctor and he sits you down and he takes your blood pressure and they check your oxygen level and then they make you step on the scale. Let's get off that one quick. Uh, they make you do a lot of things to see, are you a healthy being? Are, you, are there signs of life? Are there signs that we're seeing healthy? And that's what we're meant to do as believers, and that is what we find in Matthew chapter 5 in what we call the Beatitudes. As you remember, it gets its name from Beatus, Latin, for blessed, the first word in each one of these, these Beatitudes, these descriptors of what a true believer is. We know that, as a reminder, Matthew 4, 23, Jesus is going about the area preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so as Jesus preaches Matthew 5 through 7, we understand that to be the gospel of the kingdom. And the first thing God wants us to do is to make sure that we're actually going to be a part of that kingdom. And so he shows us, don't be deceived just because you're religious, just because you follow the Pharisees, you go to temple, you offer your sacrifices, you offer your offerings, whatever it is that you do, don't think that that's what makes you right with God. There's, uh, it's by, by faith alone in the Messiah that God is going to send, and we look back to that Messiah. And having done that, God has not simply forgiven us, he's changed us. And if we're truly changed and converted beings, we're gonna look like this person in the kingdom. This word blessed, we know, uh, means it's, it's someone upon whom God's favor, his grace rests. It's, it implies the condition of well-being that results from salvation. It's not just a recipe for happiness. Hopefully you know that by now. And so there's many different attributes of what it looks like to be a believer. You know, we studied about your poor in spirit, that we're, we're impoverished. That when we come in, we are saved not because of our own good works, not because of anything that we've done. It's, it's all by his grace. Another life signs, we take our pulse. Or do you mourn over sin? Have you truly repented? You had a complete worldview shift towards sin, and now I hate it. And you, you're shifted, your worldview shifted about God, and he's all that I long for in this world. Whom have I in heaven but you? As we take our pulse, do you see that you're meek? It's a picture of a broken horse, that you have surrendered your strength to the master and you have a settled confidence of faith in God such that when you go through trial, you don't do, go through trial like the rest of the world does. You can submit to leadership not like the rest of the world does. You can treat people with love even when they treat you poorly. That's meek. And today we come to another beatitude in Matthew 5, verse 8. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure. 
It's an, it's an attribute of, of God, if you will. It speaks to his holiness. Many people will, will, many theologians will say that holiness is the chief attribute of God. And some theologians will go far enough to say that we must not look at holiness as a singular attribute, but a summary of all his attributes. And likewise, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to be children of the Most High, we're going to long to be and to have what God is and what He has, and that is His purity, His holiness. This word here, purity, to be pure in heart, it's the word katharizo, uh, or katharos here. Katharos, and we get the word catharsis, if you've ever sat down with a Christian counselor or maybe a psychologist or whatever, you sat on a couch and they're trying to draw out from you all these negative feelings. They're trying to get you to release all these negative emotions, negative thoughts, negative feelings, just to release them from you. We call that a catharsis. Catharos, we also get the word catheter. Please don't make me turn that into an illustration. We all know what catheters are for and what they do. And if you don't, ask your mom. So, it's, but it, it, Catharos has the idea of we're removing that which is dirty, that which is vile, that which is filthy from our hearts and lives. We long to be free of this thing and we're just, we're, we're pulling it out of us. We don't want that to be a part of our lives. We used to be okay with it as unbelievers. Especially those of you who are saved late in life. Do you remember what that's like? You could sin, you could live your way and it didn't really bother you so much. Oh, maybe the consequences of sin bothered you. But then you became converted and you look back and you're like, how can we who have been saved from sin live any longer in it? Romans 6, right? We, I just, I, I don't want to live there anymore. I've been purified. And those who have been purified continue to purify themselves. They want to catheterize sin from their life. But he doesn't just say pure here, does he? He doesn't just talk about purity of appearance, that we change external things about us. I went out, I became a Christian. I got a three-piece suit and tie. I come to church every week. I sing in the choir pure in appearance, possibly. He wants to make sure that our purity is genuine, that it's real, that we are pure in heart. Heart here is, is the Greek word cardia. Any surprise? We get the word cardiac. Okay, it's our heart. So the Bible talks about a lot of times the outer man and the inner man. The outer man is wasting away. The inner man is being renewed day by day. And so the heart refers to the inner man, all that is within us. Jesus in Matthew 9, 4 was talking to a group of scribes. He says, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? So thinking, our, our capability of reasoning takes place within our hearts. Proverbs 15, 13 says, a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. And so we see that our emotions are contained within our hearts. Uh, Proverbs 6, 12 to 14 says, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech and with a perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. And so we see the element of volition within our heart, our intellect, our emotion, our will. All that is in our inner man is being described in this broad term of the heart. It's the inside, the heart of something as opposed to the outside. So God doesn't just want us as Christians, as, as a true believer, it's not just that we are pleased that we look good on the outside, that what the, the persona that we project to other people to let them see looks good. I mean, that's the Pharisees, right? They just, they're the ones who care about how they look, but they don't care that they themselves are truly in heart. When nobody's looking, it's who you are. They want to, you know, we want to be pure in heart. 
And so I can't think of a better passage to turn to when we want to talk about the difference between a believer and an unbeliever being pure in appearance versus pure in heart than to turn to 1 John chapter 3. So we're going to spend some time there this morning. Go ahead and flip to, not John, not one of the Gospels, but all the way to the back of your Bible. If you hit Revelation, you went too far. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John here is addressing the issue of true and false Christianity in the church, and he had to by that time. Initially, when the church was first formed, everybody was a, a true believer. We believed in the true gospel, and, but as Satan often does, he introduces false believers to confuse people. And so this church is confused as they start seeing different heresies creep in. One of the earliest and most notable of the Christian heresies was, heresies was Gnosticism. You know, this, there was this gnosis, this higher knowledge that you were to be seeking, this esoteric knowledge that's only available to these inner few people. And it had the idea that flesh is evil and spirit is good and therefore Jesus isn't coming in the flesh and Jesus' flesh wasn't Jesus. And it's this real messed up thing. And so these Christians are dealing with these different heresies and they're starting to realize, wait a minute, everybody that goes to church is not a believer? Okay. And this was, this was so unsettling to the people who were of, 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 in John's time that people could go to church and they can look good and they can hit some cologne, right, and smell good, but they're not real. They're only holy in appearance, but they're not pure in heart. And so John is addressing a lot of these issues. How do you spot real converted people, and how do you spot those who are only pure in appearance? And so number one, we're gonna see in 1 John chapter 3, verse one, children of God, there's something that they do that really, it sets them apart, makes them easy to spot. They care about being pure in heart. They purify themselves. Look at in verse, chapter three and verse one. You see, he begins this way. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Pause there. Just look at how John never got over the fact that he was born again. He never outgrew the gospel. He was so just overwhelmed at the idea that I am someone who is lost, deserving of hell, and, you know, as I, as I memorized it as a little kid, behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Just, just sit there in raw amazement that a perfect and beautiful and holy God would dare die for us and bring us into his family. It's like David with Mephibosheth years ago, this crippled little boy belonging to the family of Saul should have been killed by all earthly rights and then David brings him into his kingdom and places him at his own dinner table. Think Mephibosheth ever got over that? This is John speaking here. He never got over the fact that he's this crippled boy who has the sentence of death upon his heart and life, and yet God is going to dare to put us at his dinner table. He begins like that, and he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. He's saying that Christians, you're different from the rest of the world, if you haven't noticed that already. You're different from the rest of the world. And the reason they reject you is because they rejected him. The reason they don't get you, they don't understand you, they don't know why you bother coming to church. Y'all could have slept in this morning, but you showed up here. The world doesn't get you because they're not related to God. They don't know him. They don't have that intimate, familial, family relationship with Jesus Christ. He says in verse two, beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Right now, he is telling the believer uh, that what he's giving the believer here is just, it's cold water to a thirsty soul. As true believers, we live in this wretched world, okay? I say wretched because it's cursed, it's full of sin. You watch animal documentaries and you have to watch zebras getting grabbed by the throat and thrown around and baby animals getting killed and you're, you're out there as you're gardening, you're getting cut up by thorns and you go out there and the, and the humankind, we're not any more nice to each other than that and it's just, you see this wretchedness in the world and you just long to be in a place where things are put to right. You long to be holy, you long to be in a place that is holy and so John is, is letting us know, friends, this isn't all there is. <laughs> There's a lot better coming. He's appealing to those who are pure in heart that, that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven one day. And even who you are, as frustrated as you are with yourself, struggling against sin, someday God's gonna make it right. You know, at salvation, this, this process by which God makes us like him, it's a, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a slow process that we call progressive sanctification. There's a sense in which we are saved at the moment of salvation. We are saved from the penalty of sin. Sin no longer, or the law has no power over us anymore. We cannot be accused. It's what we call justification, that God declares an unrighteous person to be righteous, a guilty sinner, not guilty. So at the moment of salvation, we are immediately removed from the, the penalty of sin is removed from us. Right now, as a Christian, as we are growing in sanctification, the power of sin has been removed. And you may not believe that yet. That may be why you're struggling with sin. But the power of sin has been removed, right? Isn't that what 1 Corinthians 10 tells us? There's no temptation taking you, but what is common to man? And with every temptation, what will God give you? A way of escape. Every temptation, a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. When we sin, it's only because we choose to sin. As Romans 6 says, we have surrendered ourselves over as servants of sin. It doesn't have any more power over you than what you believe it does. And then there's a sense here that John is appealing to in 1 John 3, where he says, beloved, we're not yet what we will be. There's going to come a day when God will save us from the penalty, or the presence of sin. That sin itself will be eradicated, that we're going to be made entirely and perfectly clean before God. Our bodies will be resurrected. The, the curse is gonna be removed from us. And so he's appealing to what every believer desires. We long to be pure, and he's giving us hope. That purity has come, and that full, complete glorification where you don't struggle against your flesh anymore, that time is coming. Be encouraged, believer. Verse three, he says, and everyone who thus hopes in him. Pause. What does it mean to thus hope in him? When somebody hopes in Jesus, again, it's not us crossing the fingers at death, you know, waiting to flatline. And I hope, boy, I hope I'm going to heaven someday. This hope, as we've as we talked about before, it's, it's an assurance. It's Christmas morning. I know it's coming. It's not like Christmas ain't gonna come, but it's, it's what I'm living for at this moment. It's getting me through this tough work week. And for the believer, our hope is Jesus Christ in his appearing. And we hope, we know it's coming, and we're looking forward to that day. It gets us through these hard times today. Everyone who is a true believer, everyone who thus hopes in him does something. What, what gives you away as a believer, according to 1 John 3? Go ahead and look in your Bible. What it gives you away? Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself, even as, uh, himself as he is pure. 
Like Peter would say, be holy even as I am holy. That there's a longing in every believer the moment we are saved that we increasingly desire holiness. Now, you know, you're not immediately mature as a new believer, just like little kids, they're not immediately mature, but they stumble their way forward into maturity. As a believer, we, we do the same thing. We continue, you know, we crawl, we walk, and pretty soon we're running, pretty soon we're carrying heavy loads, is what we do. But as a believer, we, when we're born again in him, we, we become purified, and then we long for more purity. And then we long for more purity. And then we long to, be in, to abide in him even more. And we, just, we, we so desire to be clean. Everyone who, has, who thus hopes in him purifies himself. This word here to purifies, it's a synonym for the word we just described in Matthew 5.8, katharos. That we want to, uh, we want to cleanse ourselves, to purify ourselves from sin. That is characteristic of every believer. And if you don't have any desire to be clean, can I tell you, friends, you really need to take another hard look at your conversion. If as a religious person, as a churchgoer, you leave this place and you actually look for ways to hide your sin, to live in sin, to defend your sin, you get angry if somebody approaches you about that sin, that speaks against one's conversion. Because converted children, we've been made holy, and because of that, we desire to live in a holy way. It's like a butterfly. You ever see a butterfly go back to the leaf and start munching on leaves? You don't see that, do you? Because he's been completely transformed. And that process is really disgusting if you ever look at it. I mean, he dissolves his own body within that cocoon or whatever that he's in, chrysalis. And his body dissolves and is entirely made differently. So when he approaches, born again, if you will, he flies and his appetites have changed. Now he has that big long tube tongue thing and they drink from flowers and they fly in the sky. They don't live on the earth eating leaves anymore. Filthy, dirty, dirty earthy things. They, they live in the sky. That's the kind of transformation God does for us when we're believers. He completely changes our appetites. You don't love going back to those things. You may have a temptation to. But your, what you love, what you want from life, what you long for, is God has completely changed your appetite, your attitude. We purify ourselves. So when we take like the Lord's Supper as a believer, we begin to examine ourselves. Remember, we don't just, it's not just, okay, that's done, let's move on. Let's get out to Cheddar's for lunch. It's a time where I'm really examining my heart before the Lord. We're like David in Psalm 139 where he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. See if there's any wicked way in me. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David invites God to search his heart. This is really, I think, a great description of what katharos is, catharizing one's life. We invite God to search our heart and life. He says, search me, O God. And that's an interesting Hebrew word. That word search there means to do an archaeological dig, essentially. It means to unearth stuff, to dig at it, to, to, you're searching for it, and you're, you're scouring, you're, you're, you're on this hunt. It's Indiana Jones. He's going into this temple, 
And he's finding things that have been buried and covered, sometimes hidden intentionally. And he is unearthing it, and he's discovering it, and he's finding it, and he's dusting it off, and he's carrying it outside of the temple. That's what it means and looks like for us to catheterize sin from our life. We invite God, search me. Go through the very deepest recesses of my heart and life. I want you to do an archaeological dig on my heart. The things that I have buried, the things that I've covered, the things that I have intentionally trapped and tried to keep people from coming into God, I open it all up to you. Find something, dust it off, and carry it outside of my, the temple of my heart. He invites God to try me. It means to see if something is true that's genuine. He invites God to see him. It means to gaze intently upon something, to watch it, to observe it would very accurately describe what police do on a stakeout. You ever watch movies and you see police do a stakeout? They buy two dozen donuts and you know, a couple things of milk, you know, and they sit out some guy's house and they got the binoculars out there, you know, and they're, they're watching his every move. And if he gets off and takes off in his car, they're right behind him, they're watching everything this person does. They go back to their house, they watch everybody that comes in, everyone that goes out. They're looking for if there's any sign of wrongdoing. This is what David invited God to do in catheterizing his life from sin. Observe my life. Do a stakeout on my heart and observe me 24-7. Watch me when I'm in church. Watch me when I'm outside of church. Watch me at home with my mate. Watch me with my kids. Watch me when no one else is around. Watch me and see if the reality of my faith is not there. He longs to be clean. Now, all God's children long to be clean. It's either immature or unsafe people that don't want to be clean. I say immature because when I was a kid, did you love bath time as a kid? I don't know, maybe for me, I didn't. We didn't have all those cool bath toys and all the cool bath soaps where you can ride on walls and things either, but maybe that was my problem. My mom would make me take a bath one time a week. <laughs> I know, right? There were nine kids and there was one bathroom, so I, I, I give her a lot of slack there. We had this old, like, early 1900s clawfoot tub and it was tiny and, and so we'd get in there once a week and my mom would interrupt me watching Star Trek with James T. Kirk and I wouldn't get to see what happens to the Tribbles because I have to go up and I have to take a bath. So fine, I'm going to take a bath and because the next day was Sunday and we all had to look and smell good for God. So I did that. Now as a kid, if you would have left me to myself, what would I have done? I, I could have probably gone to the third grade without ever taking a bath and I would have been okay with it. Because kids don't really care what they look like and smell like so much. But as you get older, as you mature, as you discover the opposite sex, and you go, you know, I could probably stand to use a shower or two. You know, and so we, as adults, we long to be clean. I was on a seven-day canoe camp out in Alaska one time, and we were out there seven days, no bathrooms, no showers. We're, we're paddling, we're carrying our canoe across these trails, and I'm sweating all week long. And I remember just going into my sleeping bag at night and pulling it up and just thinking, ugh, I feel horrible as a human being. I long to be clean. What changed? My insides changed. Who I, who I was, my affections, what I desire changed. In that same way, believers, when we become a believer in Christ and as we mature in Christ, the closer we become to Christ, the more we become aware of our sin. Isn't that true? The more you walk with Jesus, the more intently you walk with him, you see how beautiful and glorious he is, and then what do you do? Ooh, I'm really underdressed. And we long to be pure even as he is pure. That feeling you get in your heart 
It's a life sign of a true believer. And if you don't have this constant introspection where you're looking at your heart and life and inviting God to search and do an archaeological dig on your heart, God, remove anything that's keeping me, hindering me in my relationship with you, remove it. If that's not there, it speaks against our conversion. Because true disciples, they want this. We have, there's a humility of heart that when Jesus speaks truth to our heart and life, we don't immediately deflect it. That's not me. We allow it to penetrate our heart because we're good soil. Remember, it's the stony soil that the seed of the word of God just bounces off. True believers, we allow that word of God to sink into our hearts and we become self-reflective. Even Jesus in the upper room, even if he says something as offensive as this, one of you will betray me. What did the disciples say in response? To the man, what did they say? It says, each one of them approached Jesus later on going, Lord, is it I? <laughs> is it I, Lord? That's the heart of a true believer. There's a humility that says, I'm aware that I can do any manner of sin, but I don't want to. Lord, is it I? And so when we hear the word of God, we don't just ignore it. We don't let it bounce off our hearts. We let it sink in and say, God, Lord, Lord is it I? Is this true of me? It's a, it's a life sign of a believer. Children of the devil don't do that so much. Look at number two. Children of the devil, they practice sin. When you're not in Christ, you're okay with being in the presence of darkness because you're not in the light. Chapter, th chapter three and verse four says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's important that we look at the tense of this, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later. Everyone who practices sin, it means you do it as a habitual, continual way of living. He says, understand when you do this, it's not just you made a mistake, you're not just broken, you're sinful. You, you are contrary to God's laws, you've transgressed God's laws. In theological terms, you would be a criminal before God when you break his law. He says, understand that sin is very serious, it's lawlessness. Lawlessness here, uh, we, the word law is namas, we get uh, the word Deuteronomy, Duet, uh, deuteronomos, it's the second giving of the law. To be anamos, to be against, or without law, it doesn't mean that you don't do good things. It means that you get to be the final arbiter of truth. Boy, isn't that today's culture? I decide what's right and wrong. You have your truth, I have my truth. Bible calls that lawless. The most lawless times of earth's history are when man tries to do that which is right in his own eyes, right? You ever read the book of Judges? You wanna see Israel fall seven times and God judge them for that sin? And yet it describes in that book, in that day there was no king in the land and what did people do? And every man did that which is right in his own eyes. So we didn't do things that were deliberately evil. We're just trying to do what's right in our own eyes. And if there are parts of God's law that I don't like, I just don't do them. He says that is lawless. It's not that you're really a good person who ignores sections of scripture you don't agree with. You're a lawless person. It's sort of like if you've ever watched any of these uh, police shows, you ever watch like Cops or, I don't even know if that's on anymore. But you'll see, you'll be on Facebook or some other thing, you'll be scrolling, you'll see some of these police videos and they'll pull some guy over, hey, license, registration. And once in a while, they'll get somebody especially belligerent. They call themselves a sovereign citizen of the United States. You ever seen that? 
I'm a sovereign citizen of the United States and you can't arrest me. I do not recognize your authority over me. And they just get really belligerent. That's why I don't have a driver's license and that's why I don't pay taxes and that's why I don't have to obey the speed limit laws because I'm a sovereign citizen of the United States. Does that work for them? No, they still go to a real jail. They feel the cold steel of the handcuffs around their, around their wrists. Just because you don't think you're under those laws doesn't mean you're not. And so a lawless person means you're living in a land where there are laws that govern you. But because you don't submit to the authority of that leader, you don't submit to the laws that they have. You see, sovereign citizens of the United States believe that after the 14th Amendment, the U.S. government became illegitimate, and so they don't believe that they're subject to the laws of the land. In that same way, that's what unbelievers are. They have not fully submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ in their life, and so they're not going to recognize all of his laws. Oh, the parts about, you know, people loving me, oh, I'm all for that. The parts about don't steal from me, oh, amen, amen. Don't murder, yeah, I don't like murder. Get those murderers. But when it starts saying things I don't agree with, don't fornicate, oh, wait, I shouldn't live with my girlfriend before I get married? I don't like that law. I'm going to ignore that one. <laughs> Uh, or we get to another thing, you know, oh, homosexuality, you know, if a man lay with a man is with a woman, it's an abomination. Wait, I don't like that verse, so culture is going to persecute me for that, so I'm going to ignore that. Or we read in the Bible other things, just sins. Anger? Don't make friends with an angry man lest you learn his ways. And all. Oh, I don't like that. I want to be angry. When we, Proverbs 6, when it talks about how we, when we slander and we backbite and we sow discord, it's an abomination to God. Wait a minute, I have a right to speak my opinion. At that point, friends, we're acknowledging that we are lawless. It's not that we never do good, it's that we refuse to submit to the entirety of the law of God that God has given to us. And ultimately, we do that because it's a failure to surrender to the full lordship of Jesus Christ in our heart and life. That's a scary place to be a lawless person. Verse 5, he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin, and no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. To abide in Christ means to live with him. It's another way of saying that you're born again, that you are a part of the life of Christ. Remember this, that when God says he gives us eternal life as a gift, it's not something that God just hands you and you walk away with it. The reason that you are alive is because your life 1 Corinthians 12, 13, wherefore as we have been baptized by one spirit into one body, the reason you possess eternal life is because life is in Christ and you have been immersed into that life. Sort of like the ark from the days of Noah. Okay, there's life inside that ark that God created and the reason that you are alive is not because God gave you gills. It's because God put you inside of that ark he created, Christ and then he shut the door. Okay, that's the reason you're alive, is because you're in him, you're immersed into Christ. And so God says, if anyone abides in Jesus Christ, they're immersed, they live, they dwell with him. That person, they have life, and the evidence of that is, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now we better look at that quick. Is there anybody here who is sinlessly perfect? Would you just raise your hand? so that we can tithe to you and name this church after you. We wanna see you walk on water. We wanna see you rise from the dead. Okay, there's nobody here who stopped sinning. So, but here he says, if you abide in Christ, you no longer keep on sinning. What are we talking about there? Clearly we know it doesn't mean that you're sinless. I mean, look around. You guys could tell stories on each other, couldn't you? 
Even 1 John 1, 8 talks about if any man says that he does not have sin, what is he? He's a liar, and the truth is not in him. So we still sin, but what is he talking about then? That whoever abides in him, you know, we, we don't keep on sinning. It's the difference of inviting someone to your house for dinner or inviting them to move into your home. Sometimes you have someone over for dinner, and for whatever reason you did, I don't know, uh, but you don't so much enjoy their company, and they walk away and go, why did I have those people over? You know, It's a difference between just having somebody over or saying, hey, honey, would you make up the room for them and clear it out, clear out the dresser, because they're going to come and live with us. They're going to stay with us. We're going to identify them as a part of our household. That's what he means by keep on sinning. You, you've taken sin. It's not just that sin came into your life and visited, and you're like, ah, why did I do that? <laughs> he, when he talks about keeps on sinning, you've invited that sin into your life, and quite frankly, you're happy it's there. You intend to keep on sinning in that way because you have no intention of repenting, no intention of changing that part of your life, no intention of making your life line up to what the Word of God says. You've invited that sin into your life to stay because, frankly, you enjoy it. You feel like your life would be empty without that sin. That's what he talks about. Nobody who truly abides in Jesus keeps on sinning, who has intention. I know what sin is. I've done it. I'm doing it now, and I will keep doing it in the future. He says, you don't abide in him. Sin can still come to the life of a believer, but we have the attitude now of Paul in Romans 7, don't we? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, this flesh of mine, my inner spirit and my inner man and my heart, it longs to do good, but there's this law at work in my members and my body that says, go ahead, have five little Debbies. Okay, go ahead, eat that second helping. Go ahead, watch that show. Go ahead, say that word because it so accurately describes how angry you are in your heart. Go ahead, slander that person. They have it coming. That we feel that law in our members and then when we do it, we're like, ah, oh. our, our, our purified heart says, why did you do that again? Kick that person out of your house. That's the attitude of a believer that sins. We, when we do it, we're sad that we did, and we long to be pure. Number three, some religious people are still deceived about this. And I say religious people because not everybody that goes to church is born again. If the Bible is to be believed, remember that Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the weeds, that the enemy goes into everywhere that there's true wheat of God growing up and bearing fruit, he throws seeds of weeds in there, and it looks like the wheat growing up, but it never bears fruit. It's just choking out the life of the wheat. And so not everybody who goes to church is born again. That's why 2 Peter 1.10 says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Don't let those terms scare you off. They're biblical terms. Calling and election refers to what God did for us in saving our souls. He called us, he elected us. So he's saying, confirm your calling and election. He's simply saying, make sure you're truly a child of God. Make sure you're truly born again. Don't be so arrogant as to say, Psh, I don't ever need to examine whether I'm a believer again because I've been to this church for 55 years or I grew up in church or my daddy, my papa was a preacher. 
I can, right here, I don't have to look at my heart again because right here in the front cover of my Bible, my mom wrote back in, you know, 1977 that I'm a true believer and I remember the exact date and time and I can tell you a grand story. Is, are these evidences that you're born again? Or that you walked an aisle, you prayed a prayer with a pastor that you highly respect? Is that all the evidence that you need so that you never need to examine your faith again? These are not evidences of a believer. The life signs of a believer is that you, you look and act like God, that you're poor in spirit, that you're meek, that you're, you're the merciful. It's important, Peter says, that we need to examine ourselves to make sure that we are truly born again. You know, we did a lot of international travel. You know, if you don't know us well, we served overseas in China for a while. And whenever we would make trips to, I mean, we, we'd go to Taiwan, we'd go to Hong Kong, we'd go to... Thailand, Cambodia, Malaysia. We went to a lot of different places in Southeast Asia. And whenever we did, there was a very special place in our safe that had our passports, the stack of family passports. And whenever we would come up onto a family journey, I had one specific backpack or messenger bag that I would always use, and there was a zipper pocket there. And I would always put them in the exact same spot, because if you don't, you're gonna stress out at the airport, and you're taking out all your underwear and your shampoo, and you're looking, you can't find it. So always in the same spot. And the night before, I would put it in that same zipper pocket. Morning of the flight, what do you think I'm doing? Yep, it's still there. We're driving to the airport. I know I put it in there. What do you think I'm still doing? And I'm looking to see if it's still there because there's a lot of things you can lose when you travel internationally. You lose your toothbrush, you're going to have some funky breath, but you can go to the 7-Eleven buy another toothbrush. It's harder to get another passport. And so I was always making sure. I know it's there, but I'm just, I'm making sure. He says, as believers, we need to make sure that you got your passport. Look at your life. Is the life of God flowing through you? If it's not, you need to, you need to look to see if you got your passport or not. Verse 7, John says, little children... Look how much John cares about us when he writes. Can you talk about hard things and sinful things and even call people to repentance and still do it in a loving way? John's doing it right here. Friends, we can talk about sin. We can talk about hard things like whether or not you're truly a believer. Can we do that and still care about you? There's nothing more loving than the truth. And there's nothing less loving than hiding the truth so that you'll like me. And so John is writing these people. He cares about them. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Why do you think he says that? Because there's a lot of deceived people out there who think that because they go to church, because they do all these other things, that they're born again. He says, don't, don't, be, don't be fooled by that. In 1 John 3, 7, he says, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice, verse 8, of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared to us was to destroy the works of the devil. He says, don't be deceived. If you're truly born again, your life will bear that out. It's obvious who's, who the children of God and who the children of the devil are. And it's not because you're in church. It's because your life bears fruit in keeping with repentance that you're a changed individual, you're a changed being. But there's a lot of people who go to church and who are gonna be saying, hey, but I'm a good person. I tithe. Just last week, I saved a baby bird from certain doom. 
Of course, I Instagrammed it, you know, on Facebook, and look at me, look at me saving a baby bird, you know. And we do that, you know. We, when we see ourselves, we think we're so good because we've done all these things. I give to the Girl Scouts. I give to some Shriners Children's Hospital. You can be all these things and still hopelessly lost. That you simply possess the appearance of righteousness, but you're not truly righteous yourself. Aside from the obvious Pharisees, who else in the Bible is described as somebody who has the appearance of righteousness but isn't? Who masquerades as an angel of light? That's Satan. Remember, Satan was Lucifer, son of the morning, morning star, beautiful. Satan is not this pitchforked, horned, red, <laughs> evil, grotesque-looking figure like they want to portray in the movies. Satan is the most beautiful and glorious of all of God's creation. In fact, 2 Corinthians, Paul was talking to them in chapter 11. He says, uh, he was talking about false apostles and false teachers coming into the church. And he says, they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. They want to look like the real thing. Appear holy, but not be holy. He says, and no wonder Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So when Satan comes to us to temptation, it's never, would you like to be terribly evil? <laughs> no, Satan's like, hey, there's something really good here for your life. And the woman looked at the fruit and saw that it was appealing to the eyes, that it was good to eat and desired to make one wise. When Satan comes to us in temptation, it always looks like something beautiful, something good, something honorable, something desirable for my life, something that's going to improve my life. Because he masquerades as an angel of light and so do his children. Bible says, don't be surprised when religious men, Paul calls them apostles and workmen, when, they, uh, when, they, when they're in the church, but they're not real. These people are disturbed when they see that there. He says, Satan's kids, they only want to appear to be holy. They're disguised as angels of light. I want you to see me a certain way, but I don't want to be a certain way. It's sort of like when I was a kid, and I've told you before, my dad would tell me to clean my room. What did I do? I would get the bulldozer and I would push everything under my bed. And then I would make my bed in such a way that I would pull the blankets all the way to the floor. That's when you know I was hiding something. My dad would come in, see my duplicity, and pull it all out. Clean your bed, clean your room. Do you think I stopped there? No, I still only desired to look clean, not to be clean. I also had other techniques. I would it's called stuff the dresser. You pull open the dresser drawer, and it's amazing if a child is sufficiently motivated how much they can pack into each dresser drawer. My dad would come in and say, huh. He'd open up the dresser drawer. He'd throw it on the floor, and he'd say, clean your room. Do you think I stopped there? No, I had something called the closet trick, and I would take all my clothes, and I would push it into a closet, and it was an old house, so it didn't have bifold doors, and I would get against that door, and it would, I would pop that door closed, and it was like spring-loaded. <laughs> And my dad would come in, boing, you know, and it comes out like a jack-in-the-box and everything falls out. And he's like, clean your room. Do you think I stopped there? No. I had another trick called take all the clothes, clean or dirty, folded or not, and put them all in the dirty clothes and let mom deal with it. My dad would come up from the basement and throw it on the floor and say, clean your room. See, as a child, immature children don't care to be clean. They just want to appear clean. And that's a sign that you're a child, you're immature, or you're an unbeliever that you just want to look good on the outside. Hey, uh, I want to appear like I'm holy. I want to appear like I'm in conformity with God's law. But in my heart, I don't care if I actually am as long as no one finds out. That there is the message 
of 1 John chapter 3. In verse 9, he says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He says, the reason that we don't keep on sinning, again, we're talking about you didn't just invite them over to your house, you invited them to live with you. You plan on continuing in that sin. It's characteristic of an unbeliever. He says, nobody who has been basically born again will keep on sinning. Why? Because the seed of God is in you. People always ask, you know, if you can't lose your salvation, what motivation is there to live a holy life? It's because you want to. Because the seed of God is in you. He gives you new desires. You want to consume different spiritual food. You want to live a different way. The want to. God, Jeremiah 31, has taken the law from your hands and he has placed it in your heart. So now I long to obey the word of God. My motivations have changed. The seed of God. It's the Greek word sperma. We don't need to do a biology lesson there, do we? Sperma, okay? It's the seed of God. What he's saying is when you're born again, God doesn't just stamp you as forgiven. That you're basically just like everybody out there who's out in the real world. The only difference is I'm, I'm going to heaven and y'all going to hell. When, when we're born again, it says the sperma of God, the seed of God, the very DNA of the Father has been placed in our hearts so that as we consume spiritual food, as we grow in Him, we begin to look more and more like our heavenly Father, just like you did with your earthly fathers. You look at my face, you know, you'll see that I have what we affectionately in my family call the Bauer nose, okay? It's this like weird little... You're all going to be staring at it now. Hey, this weird little hump feature in the nose. It's a Bauer nose. All the Bauer kids got it. It's the reason in junior high I had to go buy glasses. It's the reason that I have the same blood type as, I don't remember which one. One of my parents, <laughs> same blood type. It's the reason that when my dad opens up his yearbook, I'm like, there I am, only in the 1960s, wearing horn-rimmed glasses. Why? Because my father's sperma, his seed is within me so that as I, you know, I start out as a little kid, you know, and all little babies, they kind of look the same. Sorry, new mothers, but they all look like little old men, you know, and you can't really tell whose kid is who. It's the reason they have to put name tags and labels on these children. But as they grow older, as they eat food, what do they do? They look more and more like you. As they mature, they look more and more like their parents. The Bible says the same thing with us and God. The more you mature, the more you look like God. You can tell that the sperma, the seed of God is within you, because you've been regenerated. Titus 3.5 talks about the washing of regeneration. You see it even in the English. We've been regened. The seed of God is within us. Why do we do good if I can't lose what I have? It's because I'm not the same person I was. I'm, I'm born again. The seed of God is within me, and I long to be pure. I long to be holy. And that is the message of Matthew 5.8. Blessed, born again, are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 10, he says, by this it is evident. It's obvious when you look at them. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. What, what makes it obvious, John? Whoever does not practice righteousness... Practice means that righteousness is something we've invited into our house to live. We have intentions on living in righteousness. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So how can you tell who's a child of God and who's not? Look at their life. Do they practice righteousness? 
Those of you who have been banned in high school, there's a big difference between being in the band and those kids <clears throat> who practice their instrument at home. You know what I'm saying? You get there and somebody is squeaking out of tune. You know, they're coming in at the wrong place and the band director stops the whole band because that person doesn't practice at home. They're not taking their band seriously. They just want to be part of the band. They want to wear the uniform. But they don't want to practice. It's not, it's not, they don't intend to be a musician. They just want to be among musicians. How many Christians does that describe? We want to be in church. We want to be among Christians. But I don't want to be that person. I don't want to practice righteousness. He says, nor does he love his brother. He identifies that if you don't love your brother, if your faith doesn't change how you treat people to treat them in a loving and kind way, don't talk to me about your conversion. He says, the children of God, children of the devil, it's very obvious to see who's who. One practices righteousness and loves his brother. The other one doesn't. That is the message of blessed are those who are pure in heart for they shall see God. What does it mean to see God? Now, if you, if you actually do, a, if you break this down, the word see is in the future indicative tense in the middle voice. Do you all take notes on that? Okay. Let me put, let me reword this in English so how it literally reads from the text. They shall be continuously seeing God for themselves. Who is it, when is it, that we will be continuously seeing God for ourselves? 1 Corinthians 13, it's when we're in heaven. Right now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then, he says, we'll see him face to face. Then, in, that, in, in eternity, at the end of time, when God puts all things to right, we'll see him face to face. Who is it that gets to God, see God face to face? Those who are pure in heart. Those who want to be holy, not just appear holy close with this illustration here. There's a story written back in 1908, a fellow uh, named, uh, oh, what was it, uh, Oscar Wilde. He wrote a book called The Picture of Dorian Gray. Anybody ever read that? Uh, the story about a young man, he, was a, he, he inherited this vast fortune from his uncle, and what, what usually happens to young men when they get lots of money that they didn't have to work hard for? He becomes very hedonistic. He just starts living for the flesh and he's living immorally and he's ruining people's lives and he's getting drunk and he's doing all these other things that just, just usually destroy, destroy your life and distort your appearance. You know how sin has a way of distorting your appearance, whether that sin is anger and bitterness or whether that sin is something else. You know, whether, you ever seen somebody who's been doing meth for a while? You ever seen those before and after pictures of meth people? It distorts your appearance. And this guy knew that, but he still wanted to live that way, but he didn't want to look that way. And so he prayed one time, and I don't know who Dorian prayed to, what kind of false god that he had to pray to to get this, but his prayer was answered in that he could live however he wants, and the portrait of himself on the wall would distort and disfigure according to his sinfulness. And so he's just living this profligate life and just living immorally, living horribly, ruining people's lives. But all the while, the portrait on the wall kept becoming increasingly disfigured. And every time he'd look back on the wall, it would get angry. It would be a constant reminder, you're not who you appear to be, you are who you are on the inside. And the portrait of Dorian Gray revealed the darkness of his heart. And he despised the picture. He loathed that picture. And at the end of the movie, not movie, the end, of the, uh, the end of the book, he actually destroys that picture in fire, all the while destroying himself. How many of us is that people who come to church who might be living in deception 
We're the picture of Dorian Gray. As long as we appear holy, as long as I wear my suit, as long as I look good, as long as I do my hair and I got my cologne and I, I come to church and I do religious things, don't look at me what I am outside the church. And then all of a sudden, we'll pass by our portrait. James talks about the Bible as a mirror, and we look at ourselves in the mirror, and then somebody reveals something sinful in the Bible, and we all of a sudden get a, a look at ourselves, and we see something that's hideous staring back at us, and we get angry. We want to destroy it. How dare you? It's the picture of Dorian Gray. True children of God, we aren't content with just appearing holy on the outside, are we? That was, that was the Pharisees, who cleaned the outside of the cup, but not the inside. We don't just want to look good. We want to be the real thing. We want to be holy as God is holy. We want to be holy even if God is the only one that notices. Friends, that is the life sign of a believer. Take your pulse. Is that longing to be a holy person in your heart? Or are you content with just people looking at you good, that you have a good reputation? Reputation means nothing. It's not going to get you to heaven having the sperma, the seed of God in you, such that it makes you long to be holy when no one's looking, that's a life sign of a believer. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that as we've studied this, these uh, Beatitudes, Father, the, I, I pray that those of us who are true children of God will just rejoice in the evidence that speaks to our conversion. That, that we see increasingly as we mature and grow in Christ, that we see ourselves becoming more and more like him, that we're more holy, that we become more merciful, that we become more meek and submitted to you and leaders, and we become more uh, repentant over sin. We feel sorrowful over sin in increasing ways as we draw near to your holiness. I pray that for believers who see this and they take their pulse, they're, they're rejoicing in the life signs of God. But Lord, I'd like to pray for those who perhaps are deceived. Maybe those who have been coming to church for a long time. And in, in a very real sense, it's Dorian Gray. I just want to appear good. As long as people don't think ill of me. As long as I'm not seen as a troublemaker. As long as I'm not seen as a bad person. As long as people view me as a good person. I'm, I'm content with that, but I still want to live my own way. God, when that speaks against our conversion and we study it in the Bible, we see our portrait, God, help us not to recoil, help us not to become defensive, but to, like Psalm 139 says, to open up our hearts and lives and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Get down to the very core of this temple and see if there is, if it's true, if it's genuine what's inside me or if I'm just enjoying being around band people, but not practicing my instrument, not practicing righteousness. Father, make us holy as your people today, even as Jesus Christ, even as Father, even as our Holy Spirit is holy. God, make us like you today. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.